I'm going to do a movie quote kind of pop quiz this morning, so um, if you know this when it's done, shout the answer out. <clears throat> I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. I have to believe that my actions still have meaning, even if I can't remember them. I have to believe that when my eyes are closed, the world is still there. Do I believe the world's still there? Is it still out there? Yep. We all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are. I'm no different. Anybody know the movie? Yes. Memento. Whoever that was out there, good kudos to you for remembering that movie. It's an old movie. Well, Bob Marley makes it sound really easy. He says, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Uh, But it's not that easy. That would be oversimplifying our reality. Maybe Bob Marley says what we wish was true, that you could just say, don't worry, it'll be fine, and then it would be fine. But that doesn't really work. I mean, we all know that. If it did, we would we would, that's all we would do. You start to be troubled by something, we say, oh, don't worry. And you go, oh, I'm glad you told me not to worry. That, that solved it right there. That was, <clears throat> it isn't that simple. At the same time, there's, there's the danger of oversimplifying the answer to the problem, the antidote. There's also a danger of creating worry where there isn't some already. And I want you to know, we're, uh, I'm not trying to do that today. If you're, if you're in the midst of this transition with Warehouse or any other transition in your life, Uh, where you're feeling a sense of maybe what the song introduced, an aching in your mind, a kind of a disquiet in your spirit, an uneasy feeling, Um, then 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 today is for you. But but I'm not trying to create that if it's not there. Sometimes if you tell somebody not to worry, they go, oh, I'm not worried. Should I be worried? And then they start going, what should I be worried about? And then, so you're, we don't want to create it if it's not there. Um, But the reality is, yeah, this is typically a, a difficult and, and uneasy situation for a church to go through, and it's important to, uh, uh, to seek what, what answers are there uh, and, and go through it and, and, and experience it fully. Now, um, I don't want to give trite answers. I know that oftentimes what, what I, have, I found in church growing up was, was an overly simplified, direct answer that if anybody stopped and said, what do you mean by that? You know, if there was a heckler in the crowd who said, what does that mean? How do you do that? I imagine that maybe the pastor would have not much else to say. So in the midst of something like this, we, we might think that just trust God was, was the answer. If you're in the midst of a trial, difficulty, uh, struggle, just trust God. And that, I'm not saying that's not true. But if you were to say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to just trust God? We would have to work that out. Uh, we can't just walk away and say that was enough or just pray. And okay, that's it. Uh, we know it's more than that. And so... Warehouse is in a very real transition as a church. And some of you probably are in, in, in these kinds of things in your own life. And so you identify some with, with the song, with the lament, and uh, hopefully with what we're going to talk about today and how this series is, is progressing through, uh, like Steve said, an ancient story um, that we can draw from. We can draw some very real uh, application for today. How do you fight the temptation to become distracted uh, in the midst of something like this by anxiety and worry, that that's, that becomes your reality, that all you're thinking about is what might happen. 
and to be distracted by from what, what maybe God really wants you to be doing in the midst of a transition in your own life or here at, at Warehouse. How do you resist that temptation? And it'll happen to each of you, probably some individually. And then as a church, probably there'll be points where the whole church will sense uh, kind of this boiling up unease. How do you combat it? The temptation is there to be consumed by it. Uh, and I want to give you two things. If you write s- stuff down during, during sermons, here, here's kind of two categories. One is that you can remember that God has made promises to you. And I hope that's not just an oversimplified trite answer because I want to work this out a little bit. But um, if you remember that God has made promises and you say, well, uh, why should that be important? That's easy to say. It's easy to say that God has made promises to us. Well, this is the interesting part about it. You can study this and, and realize that, at least in the Bible, it goes all the way back to the beginning. That the way God has always dealt with human beings is to make promises to them, to us. This is just the way he's related to us from the very beginning. From, from when he made human beings on the earth in his image, he started making promises to us. And so it's comforting to know that this is not something new, that this is something that God has always done, and he's fulfilled his promises. Those promises, over time, they kind of unfold. There's, there's more things uh, revealed about them. And they're, and they're unfolded through different people, through individuals that we read their stories about uh, particularly in the Old Testament. And I hope you, uh, if you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament, you would start spending some time uh, reading these stories. You'll start to see that what I'm telling you is in fact true, that at least there is contained uh, 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 evidence that God has from the very beginning made promises to people and then keeps kind of expanding those promises to people. <clears throat> and ultimately, and I think this is where it brings the most comfort to me, because I may not be comforted by the fact that God dealt with this, that person in the Old Testament. It might not bring any comfort to me, but that all of those promises that God made and how it was unfolded and revealed and expanded all the way through uh, the history of God dealing with people, that all of that is ultimately and finally completely fulfilled in Christ. All of it. So that we see that not just some specific promises God made here or there, and maybe we can draw some comfort from that, but that the bigger picture of God making promises to people has already been fulfilled when he gave Christ to us. And this is uh, who we come to worship. This is, this is our Lord, not just their Lord in a story somewhere far back. This is, our, this is who we have. He's given us his promises in Christ. There is a question that dangles there, I think, sometimes for, for us, and that is, if, if you look at these people, because when you get right down into the story, he made promises to specific people. He did. And when you look at those people, this nation of people, a whole race of people called the Israelites, and you say, why would he make promises to them? Why did he single them out? Why did he seem to exclude, at one level, others and only kind of deal with them? And, and I think intuitively we might assume, well, that's because they were certainly the most qualified people. They were, you know, God was sort of trying to pick a team, and he said, well, there's a winning team. I'll cheer for them. Like, that's what I did when I was a kid. I said, who's winning? Let me, che- let me cheer for them. And we think maybe that's how God did it. How, how does God decide who he's going to choose to work through? How did he do that? I, I, I submit to you that it's probably the exact opposite of the way we think. That it's possible that God selected this group of people to work through, to make promises through and deal with and relate to directly because they are the least qualified, least competent, most immature, broken, backward, hard-headed group of people that he could find on the earth. That's what I believe he did. 
Because the reality is, if, if he says, I want to promise you, you, this nation, that I'll make you into something great, and I'll move you around and place you in a, in a certain spot on the earth, so that from that spot you can, you can affect the lives of everybody on the planet in a positive way, that we would think, well, then pick the most qualified people. But if he picks the most qualified people, then the whole earth will be affected by a highly qualified, highly competent group of people, and no, no one would realize that, it, that God was involved in it. So I think God chose those people because they were the people who would most clearly represent the fact that God is the only one who could have taken that group of people and done anything with them, anything good with them. And so why, cho- why chose them? I think ultimately dis- to display his own greatness best was why he chose them. And so for me personally, I, I look, I identify with that. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I grow year by year a familiarity with my own uh, unqualification for this, the, 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 my own deep brokenness and darkness. And I get that. I, I, I look at those people and say, I, I identify with them. God is choosing someone like that, then he, then he can involve me. He wants to relate to me, and he's made promises to me, and I believe he's made promises to you. And so one, one level of the antidote, the, the, the way to protect your, yourselves from the temptation to be drawn further and further into an anxiety that all it does is propose, what, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to us? And be distracted by that and miss the fact that God is trying to take us somewhere, take you somewhere, individually and as a church. The temptation to resist, to resist the temptation is to remember that God has made promises to us and fulfills them. The other side of that is that God has also made demands of us. He requires something from us. And that's something very much worth remembering because what's tied in here, and we're going to see this in, in some of these old stories that we read, is that God expects something from us. He's going to do something for us, but what he wants us to be concerned about is not, hey, what's going to happen to me next? And be, and be consumed by the idea of that. But to be consumed by the idea is, what am I supposed to be doing? What does he expect me to be doing? Because what God expects me to be doing is something that's ultimately going to be best for me and for, uh, for a community of people. God only required of them what ultimately would be for their best. And I, I, I use this illustration all the time, that as a father, and it's appropriate on Father's Day, that my children oftentimes don't understand what it is that I want them to do and why it's better for them. That they do exactly to me what I did do to God. And that is, I go, well, I think that I know. What's, I think I know. I have this sense about what I, where I want to be and where I want to go, and I should, I should go there. I should, I should do that. And God says, yeah, but, but the reason you're resisting me is you don't understand that as, as your father, I know what's best for you, and I will take you there, and this is what I want you to do. And so we resist that because we don't ultimately realize that what God wants for us is better. What he requires of us is actually better for us. So to obey God is to embrace life. And, and this people, this nation of people that God selected, that he worked through, you, you need to understand that when God gave them uh, their requirements, that they embraced it wholeheartedly. They understood that what God had given them was a tremendous gift. Now, we look at it sometimes and go, yeah, but he just gave them a bunch of rules about how to wash your hands and what kind of clothes you're supposed to wear and w- which day you should eat this and not. And, and we look at that and we go, who, would, who wants that? And yet, they embraced it. And in the writings, that when they write about the requirements that God made of them, they write about it and they say, it's like life to us. It's like light. It's joy. We love this. 
It's, it's, it's a people who were drawn into a relationship with God because he gave them something wonderful. Because what they understood he was saying was, I care so much about you that I'll require you to live this way and it'll be better for you. You'll have a better life. Wherever you are, you'll have a better life. And then you can affect other people's lives. You can show them that how you live is a better way to live. It's better for all of us. So he's both given us promises and also made demands from us. And the demands he made from us are just like, in a sense, the promises. They start from the very beginning. When God starts relating to human beings, he starts saying, this is what I expect from you. This is what I require of you. If you obey me, you will have life, a fuller, better, more, more wonderful life. And if you disobey me, then you're, you're, you're breaking down what I've designed for you. You're, you're, you're having contempt for something very good that I want to bring you. So he makes demands from the very beginning, and they are revealed progressively. Much like the promises, they slowly start to get to, to expand. They become more particular, more specific, especially with a guy named Moses, probably the, the, the most familiar, even in our culture, Old Testament guy, right? We've probably seen a few movies with him in it, long beard, robe, staff, leading people around in, in sandy desert areas. Uh, that's him. And you need to understand he's a part of this story because that's the first person that this whole nation of people, that's the first spiritual human spiritual leader they ever had. It's the only one they ever had. It's the only one that they knew. Up until that point, they had been slaves. They were slaves in Egypt, and they didn't have any spiritual leadership, none. This is the first one that they knew. And so, like, so, so God has revealed it through Moses to them. This is what he requires of them, specifically, particularly. And then, like the promises, we have an ultimate fulfillment of this, this law, this, these rules. We have all of that fulfilled in Christ as well. So what we have today, yes, is a certain set of rules that we look at and we go, these make sense. If I really did follow this and obey this, my life would be better. That's probably true. But all of this has been fulfilled in Christ for the church. We have this. Much like the promises, this has all been fulfilled. I listened to the, the, the two podcasts who, that set up this sermon series from before, Mark Dickman's and Kirk Graves. And, and so I know that uh, what you've heard already about this, some of what you've heard already, is about a character named Joshua. I mentioned Moses before. Moses uh, has died and has handed over the leadership of the nation to Joshua. And we're going to look at uh, a little bit about him more today. I want you to know this, though. If you're starting to make any connection with the idea of the anxiety and the disquiet and the uneasiness of transition in your life, if, if, you, if you recognize that, if you say, yep, I, I got some of that going on, and some of it might be related to the, the, what's happening in the warehouse, and some of it might just be in your own, in your own situation. Uh, I want you to know that if, if we're going to get a sense of what these folks were feeling, this nation of people was feeling, you need to know this is more than just a change of leadership for them. It's more than just Moses, the only spiritual leader that they ever knew, had died. But now it's, and we're moving into a new home, a new place, a whole new land that they had they had not been in before. In fact, only a handful of them had ever been into this land before. These were a group of scouts, spies, that 40 years before had been sent in to have a look. And when they came back, two of them said, okay, here's the deal. It's a scary place. It's going to take a lot of work, but we believe that God can do this. He promised it to us, so we believe he can do it. And those two people were Caleb and Joshua, the guy who now is leading the nation. But there were a whole bunch of other people who said, what Kurt talked about. They started spreading this gossip. They started embellishing and exaggerating the reality that was there, and they talked everybody out of it. And so all the people kind of went nuts. They rebelled against the whole idea, and they said, we're not going in there. We're too afraid. 
And so they wandered in the desert, and God said, then, then, then if you don't want to go in, then you'll spend the rest of your lives in the desert, and your children will go in. And that's kind of where we are, is, uh, is they're at the brink of a change, of something radically different and new for them. Not just leadership, but also the place where they live and the way they live. And these are people who their whole lives have either been enslaved in Egypt or who have been living in tents and moving constantly around the desert. That's their whole life. That's all they've known up until this day that we're going to read about. That's all they knew. I mean, imagine that, the change. Now you've got to build a house for the first time. That, and, and does anybody here know how to build a house? None of them have ever built a house before. None of, them, none of them know what that's like. It's time to plant crops. Do we know how to do that? We've got to survive now. We have a land to take care of. How do we do this? So all of this is going to change for them. And so it's, it's natural to think that they might have an increasing uh, amount of anxiety about what's about to happen for them. They're also going to have a whole new set of neighbors. They're going to have a border to protect, a land that's theirs that they don't want other people intruding on or trying to take from them or, or go to battle. They have to do this now. They have a whole set of, you know, diplomacy that they have to work into that they don't know about. They have temptations now that they have never had before, which is the nations and the way people live around them to say, that does kind of look better than what we're doing here. Like, that looks like it's more fun over there, what they're doing. God has told us all these rules that we have to keep. But maybe sometimes there's that temptation to go, but I kind of like what they got going on. That is going to be a whole new temptation for them. And so Joshua, the leader, is, is to prepare them for this. And, and we think that we can derive some, some answers uh, from, from what they're going through. So in Joshua chapter 1, it'll be on the screen. And I'm just going to read to you uh, just a couple verses to set this up. Starts with verse 8. <clears throat> God is speaking to Joshua here. And he says, Do not let this book of the law, and this book of the law is... is in Hebrew, it's Torah. You may have heard this term before. The Hebrews still use this. Um, and he says, so do not let Torah depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Now we're going to kind of unpack uh, some aspects of this. And the first question that jumps to my mind is why the emphasis on the Torah? Why, when God is giving direction, he says, this is critical to you that you take my word, the words that they had been given up to that point, which is effectively the, the written history up to that point, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He says, and I want you to take it, and I want you to kind of consume it. I want it to just pour out of you. I want it to be on your mind all the time that you think about it. You consider, what does this mean for where we are? How do we live this out now that we're in this whole new place, this whole different kind of thing? What has God been telling us and preparing us? And what are the promises that he's made? Because this is the deal. The reason why this is such a critical part of their move, is because contained in Torah are the promises and the demands of God, which I've said to you, I've proposed to you, are the antidote for being consumed by worry and anxiety about what might happen, that we can focus on God has made promises and he's been faithful. The fact that we're here today 
is proof that he's been faithful. He's giving us this land. He's proven himself, and now he's requiring something from us. So don't let that depart from you. Don't forget. Keep it on your lips and mind all the time. So the centrality, I guess, of their change is God's promises and demands as found in his word. So, and, and I submit this to you, that the church entire should, should take this very seriously. For the church in the world today has to be a people of this book. We, we have to be. We have to just start reading it. We have to start consuming it. If you're not reading it, I challenge you to start reading the stories. Go home and read the same stories over again that we're, we read here. Start consuming it. It will prepare you for whatever change is coming. It will be an antidote against this unease in your spirit. And it's not a simple answer. It's not. We'll get into that, why it's not. But. So, the preeminence of the Torah, of the, of the law, is because we need to know that what, what God wants us to be concerned about is what we're doing. And again, not to be distracted by what we think is going to happen to us. So what we're, what we're supposed to be doing and what God's doing for us, all of that is contained in his word, so we have to have it uh, on our minds all the time, considering it, even praying through it. And, and, and the idea of prayer is that sometimes we don't know what to say. And if you're around people who pray a lot, they feel, you think, oh, they know what to say. They know exactly how to do this. I don't know how to do this. I would say, then start praying what, what the Bible, just pray the words of the Bible. Say, okay, God, I hear you're telling me to be strong and courageous. You told Joshua to be strong and courageous. What, what does that mean for me? How do you want me to be that? God, I'm going through a transition. How, how, how can I trust you? How do I? I mean, ask the questions of God. Do that. I mean, it's, it's right to do that, to ask him to, to show himself to you, to show that he's faithful the way he was faithful then. And, and, and so praying even through uh, his word is important. He says what will happen is that you'll be prosperous and successful. That, that's, there's a promise embedded right there. He says, if you keep this word of, if you keep my word on your minds and you think about it, almost like what we would call creating a worldview. God is trying to help them create a, a, a spiritual worldview based in, in, in what he said to them and what he's done for them. So that everything that they see around them, everything that's happening to them, they can, they can bounce it off of what they know of what God is doing. They can check it against, okay, does this... Is it, is this right? Is this what God has said to us? Is this what he's promised? Is he I mean, so they can always use that uh, against what's happening around them. So to create effectively a, a biblical worldview for them. And, and I think it's right for us to do that. And he says, and if you do that, you'll be prosperous and successful. Now, we have to be careful here. And, I, and I'm, I'm aware that there is a, a church culture in America in particular, maybe in other parts of the world, that really loves that word pros, prosperous. They, they, they latch on to this idea that God is... His whole design for us is to make us prosperous. And they might even use this passage some and say, see, see, God wants to make you prosperous and successful. And I always stop at something like that and go, okay, in the context of this story, though, what, what, do you, what would he be meaning? When I told you that this is, this is the fulfillment of a promise that God has even said, this is the land you're looking right at now into and about to cross into, the land that I promised one of your great, 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 great grandfathers named Abraham. I brought him out here and I showed him this and I said, one day your descendants are going to live here. He says, and I'm making that promise true today, right here in your, in your, your part of it. So if God is going to do that, then uh, what does this prosperity and success mean for them? And I would say that the, the other part of what he said to Abraham when he promised that land to him is the key here. What prosperity and success means is that the world around you will be blessed because you're there. The whole reason God put them there 
is, is to create uh, a center from which to affect the entire world from there. So he says, you'll be prosperous and successful because I want the whole world to know that the God that brought you here is the only true God. And that they can look at their gods and go, our gods are nothing like that. They, they live better. They are blessed. We want what they have. And this is the place from which he's going to do it. So that's, why, that's how they're going to be prosperous and successful. They're going to be prosperous and successful in order to bless the whole world around them. That's why they're going. That's the whole reason why they're there. So that's what the prosperity and successful part is about that, to clear up if there's any confusion. Now, he also says to him, now I've commanded you, and I've said it before, and I know this is a phrase that keeps repeating itself. In fact, I think that both Mark and Kurt mentioned it in their sermons, this be, be strong and courageous. Right? God says, I've commanded you, be strong and courageous. Now, again, if we're looking back at sort of sound bites and we go, yeah, it's, it's an oversimplified answer to say, if you're worried, just, just don't worry, or, or uh, everything will be fine, nothing to worry about. That's, that's oversimplifying and trite answer. This be strong and courageous, though, should leave us with an entirely different sense. Because if what God was saying to Joshua and to the people through Joshua, hey, everything's going to be fine. You'll be safe here. This will be easy living. Everything's going to be cool if you just go in there. Then he wouldn't say be strong and courageous because when he says be strong and courageous, what I should be preparing myself for is that this is going to be difficult and this is not going to, it's, it's, it's going to be hard work and it's not going to be easy or else he wouldn't say over and over again, be strong and courageous in this transition, right? So Joshua's getting the sense that I've heard God say this five or six times, I should be preparing myself for a road that will not be easy and it will not be safe when we're there. And yet he still asks us to go. So we're going into a situation, indeed, that will not be easy and it will not be safe. And then you hear God add this refrain to it, because God will be with you wherever you go. That's the point. The point is that in a transition that you may be living through and that your church is living through, that, that we're tempted to cling to something that makes us feel safe. It makes us feel normal again. We don't like this. It's, things are changing, and they're going to continue to change around here. And I don't like this. Just give me something I can hold on to that's not moving, something solid. And so we, we, we're drawn into the temptation to just cling to anything just to make us feel normal, make us feel safe. And, uh, and he says, you don't need to feel that. You need to feel my presence with you because I'm going to go with you. You won't be safe, but I'll be with you in the midst of that. There's a, a, a pastor from California, Erwin McManus, wrote a book called The Barbarian Way. And um, I didn't love the whole book, but there was one little part in it that, that, that really sort of tweaked the way I think about uh, about everything, particularly parenting. And so uh, here on Father's Day, I'll give you a little Father's Day advice that I got from Erwin McManus. Um, he talked about t- tucking his son in at night, and he would go into his son's room at night before he went to bed, and he would always say, son, is there anything I can pray for you? And he noticed that uh, over a few weeks, the son was starting to become very anxious about his room, the, whatever might be under his bed, and whatever might be in his closet. And of course, the the father knows that this this is irrational fear and things like that, but he doesn't, you can't tell your son, hey, you're being irrational, son. That might be an overly simplified answer to the fact that his son is struggling with something. So this is what he said. So the son says to him, Dad, will you pray that I will be safe? When you pray tonight, will you pray that I'll be safe? And this is the, uh, this is the, the courage of a father now passed on to me, now to you. He says, no, son, I won't pray that you'll be safe. 
He says, because I don't think God guarantees us that. He says, but I'll pray that you'll be brave so that whatever comes, you'll be able to stand up to it. Now, that changed the way I think about fatherhood for myself, about parenting. Is that God doesn't guarantee this. He's asking these people to go into this land, and he tells them it's not going to be safe. But go anyway and be brave. And I think that's what he's saying is just go, in, just go where God's taking you and be brave and be strong and do the hard work. And don't shy away and don't do what your parents did because they all died in the desert. They missed out on the fulfillment of one of the true great promises, not just for them, but for the whole world. They missed it. They delayed it by 40 years because they were afraid. They were neither strong nor courageous. And so he says, Joshua, take them in. Now, I want you to notice something that's unique about this. If you compare it to the the last time they were there, 40 years before, only a few of them now probably remember that. Most of them were children, and their parents had all died in the desert. But Caleb and Joshua were there. This is their second time standing where they were, now looking at the promised land. I can imagine Joshua's going, man, I waited a long time for this. I was ready to go last time we were here. Now, after 40 years of wandering, I am ready to go. And you'll notice that there are no scouts sent into the land this time. There is no discussion about the land. There is no waiting. Joshua hears that word from God, and he immediately turns and says, you tell the people, get ready, because we're going. You tell them, pack their stuff. We're taking it. They got three days, pack their stuff, and we're going in. This is the resolve that Joshua has, the sense, and this is the sense that he has. God makes promises to us, and he makes demands of us, and now it's time to make it happen. It's time to go. He gave us something wonderful. We should take it. This is exactly what he said before, but this time, no waiting, no discussion. And this is why. This is, why, this is where Joshua's confidence comes from. And I, I can tell you this is exactly the confidence that your church and you in your own life can have. It's this. Because Joshua is not the leader. He is God's man. But God is the leader. God has always been the leader. That when they said we won't go into the land, that they were more afraid of what was in the land than they were afraid of their leader, who was God. He was saying, I'll take you there. I'll go with you. My presence will be with you. God is their leader. And Yeshua is his man. Now, I I did something there. Did you see it? Did you see what I did? That name Joshua, that's an English name. The Hebrew name for him is Yeshua. Moses actually changed his name. His name, when he first went into the land 40 years before, was Hosea. And Moses changed his name to, to Yeshua, which means God is our salvation. Changed the man's name well into his life. He was probably 50, 60 years old, and Moses changed his name. He said, because when you walk in there, they need to know that it's not you that's the leader, that it's Yahweh, their God, is their leader, and you are his man. And I want to tell you this. This is why it should be comforting even to right now in 2012 in the church, because God is still the leader of your church, and Yeshua is still his man. Because you know, I think someone has mentioned it, that Yeshua is Jesus' name in Hebrew. That's the same name. We just translate it through Greek and then into English, and it becomes Jesus, and we translate it straight from from, uh, Hebrew into English, and it becomes Joshua. It's the same name. So still, to this day, God is your leader, and Yeshua is his man. It's still true for you, for me. So God will be present with you as you go. You have to be strong and courageous. 
the antidote for this kind of disquiet, this uneasiness, is that God, God will go with you and Yeshua is his man. Jesus is the true head of the church. It really, it really is as simple as that. That if we start to think that there's a man or a woman that leads the church, this is untrue. And if we worry about that instead of being, and, and be distracted from what we are supposed to be about, obedience to God, holding this word so close to us that it starts to sort of pour out of us, then we miss the point that God wants us uh, to see. A point that's been true even since the time uh, of Joshua and the Israelites. I'm going to read the, the next little bit here because I found this um, uh, compelling even if it's just a, a bit of an aside and may be most compelling for, for the situation that uh, Warehouse is in right now. Um, so this is starting with verse 12. After he said, it's time to go. Get your stuff packed up. It's time to go. He says, but to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land, the land they were already in. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all of your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You're to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So you see what's happening. Some of the people have arrived. They can settle right where they are. And what I, what I love about this is Joshua says, yeah, but, but your brothers support you, and they're going to go and fight with you so that you can settle your land. And what I hope you see here at your church is that you are not alone in this. And not, only, not, and not just the sense that, in, in the large sense, that yes, God is leading you and Jesus is, your, is, is the head of your church and, and our church. Not, not just that, but in a very specific way, you have brothers and sisters who are going to fight with you for this. You have a, the, the village church prays for you and is praying for you probably right this minute in our church, praying for Warehouse. Because we believe that God has something wonderful for you, that when, when you uh, settle yourselves, that, that God still wants something from you and is doing something in your midst and in this city and through this church. And so we, so we want to send our fighting men to fight with you. That's what we want to do. We want to follow this pattern and say the church out there is still with you, believes in what you are doing and supports you in it so that you don't feel like you're the only one, that you're, that you're isolated by yourself. Um, and that's a specific uh, promise that I'll make to you, uh, that we will stand with you in this and support you. So if you feel this aching, as the, the, as the lament song said, this ache in your mind, if you feel that, uh, whether it's about this transition for warehouse or something in your own life, if you sense that, this disquiet, all of this change is happening, and you're tempted at some point to just say, just in desperation, let me just grab onto anything that will make me feel normal again, that will make me feel safe, make me feel comfortable, because I just so dislike this feeling. If you're tempted to do that, um, this is what I want you to remember, that you should grasp onto God's Word. And I mean that. I mean, if you're, if you're not in the practice of reading it, I, then here's my direct challenge to you. Start reading it. Start consuming it. Just make it a part of what you're doing so that it starts to affect the way you approach your problems and, and approach your transitions and your changes. Just start thinking about it. Start praying it. If you don't know how to pray, just start reading it as a prayer. Just work that. 
work that angle, you'll start to see that God in here, he, he reveals his promises, not just to a bunch of people from a long time ago, but I hope I've showed you that those promises have, have worked themselves all the way through to the church in 2012. That the reality of all this is that Christ is the head of the church and God loves the church and wants to prepare us for something wonderful. And that he requires us to do some things. That God has some demands that he makes of us. And we take those things seriously and we should know, we should yield to the fact that like I would do with my own father and my children do with me, sometimes I I push back and go, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And I don't trust that what you want me to do is probably better for me. I just want to do what I want. And that lesson has to be learned over and over again. And sometimes it's about us saying, God, what you want me to do is, what I, is what's best for me. I need to do it. I need to be strong and courageous in doing it because it's not going to be safe. It's not, it's not easy work. Uh, but I need to do it and understand what it is that uh, God is giving to us and requiring from us. And I want, you, I want to leave you with kind of a, a, a last rhetorical question. And, and maybe this is a prompt uh, for something that you should pray. And if you can remember it, pray it as many days in a row that you can remember this. And that is once you, once you are through this, once you're through this transition as a church, and maybe when you think about your own life and some things that may be going on, once you get through a transition like that, when, the, when that feeling goes away, when the calm has been restored, when you feel normal again, how will you be changed by it? How will this be a different church because of what you're going through and what you're, what's still ahead of you? How will the church be different? How will you think differently about who you are, about what God is doing in you. I, I'll tell you this, if you spend the whole time distracted by, the, by, by this temptation to, uh, to worry and, and to, to be so uneasy about what you're going through and miss the fact that God is, is with you in it, uh, then you might not be much, you might, the change might not happen that God wants to bring about. And so I, I want you to ask yourself that question, how will this experience change me when we get to the other side, when we finally settle Uh, where God has us next. Let's pray. God, we do, because of your stories that you gave us, we do have uh, a rich treasure that is uh, incredibly valuable for us even today. It seems so far away, Lord, but we recognize that all of these things, these stories, have come true uh, in Christ, and he is today actively the head of, of the church. And so this has all been made real uh, because Christ is present with us and he is our leader. And I pray you'd help us to yield to that, to remember that whatever change is coming, uh, that we can be confident that you're a God who makes good on his promises and has promised something for the church, uh, something wonderful. And we want to grasp that. And we find it in your word, the evidence of it. And uh, then we find it worked out Uh, in our lives and in our church. And so we pray that you would uh, make us strong, courageous people of prayer, people of the book, uh, so that we can be prosperous and successful uh, in the ministry uh, of, as Warehouse says, uh, the city rejoicing. That is the ministry. That's the prosperity and success uh, that awaits Warehouse. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is, uh, this is a part of worship, the taking of offering. I mentioned this in the first service, uh, that a lot of trusting in God can be uh, manifest in, in our giving. Uh, and, and sometimes in clinging to 
to our money, we manifest a distrust in God. And, and I think about the lady that Jesus talked about in a story one time. There's an elderly woman who dropped two coins into a collection container uh, at the synagogue one day, and Jesus pointed her out. Nobody would have noticed an old woman dropping two coins. She didn't give very, very much money. And, uh, and Jesus pointed her out, and he said, that woman's given more than anybody else because uh, she gave everything she had. And I always pondered that. I thought that was kind of an irresponsible thing for her to do is give away everything she had. Why would somebody give everything? And, and is that what God's asking me to do? Like, literally, I just, okay, here's all of it. I mean, now I got nothing. Is that what he's asking? Is that why Jesus brought the story up? And I don't think it is. I think Jesus brought the story up to illustrate the fact that, that every individual person is going to be wrestling with the level of trust that they have in God. And she felt so strongly about it that she said, if, that because I only have two coins, I am strongly tempted just to cling to these two coins as if that's going to save me or that's going to help me. She says, I need to let go of these so that I can really trust in God. And so whatever that, at whatever level that means, the offering is, a, is an act of worship because it's an act of trust. And, uh, and so while the, uh, the band plays, uh, the offering will be collected.